Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program of table talk with scholars, artists, and librarians about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted and very honored today to be speaking with Julia Bolton Holloway. Dr. Holloway is a medieval scholar who has written on edited editions about and or translated Brunetto Latini, Dante, St. Bridget of Sweden and Julian of Norwich. She also edited the Penguin edition of the poems of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She's taught at Quincy University, Princeton University, and the University of Colorado at Boulder, where she was director of the Medieval Studies program. She took an early retirement from Colorado to enter an Anglican convent. She is now a Catholic hermit and is custodian of the Swiss-administered English Cemetery in Florence, Italy, which she has helped to restore from decrepitude over the past 20 years and where she is in the process of building a library about its famous denizens. Uh, we're going to be talking with Julia via Zoom from Florence about her scholarship, her work as a keeper of graves, her library and archiving activity, and also her religious calling. All of these roles, to me at least, seem naturally to go together. So welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you. Well, I do find that they go together, although the institutions don't really like that. Um, <laughs> one has to sort of um, transgress boundaries. I find that what I'm doing is very holistic. It's working with other human beings in a common humanity, whereas society instead fractures us into classes uh -huh. and religious sects and so on and so forth. And that isn't really natural. And I think at the end of my life, I'm now 84, uh, I retired at 55, I'm finding that actually all things do come together although you do meet with resistance to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm delighted with what has happened, finding myself, which I never expected, to be looking after a cemetery and uh -huh. so forth, in Florence of uh -huh. all places, <laughs> and yeah. so forth. It sounds like the perfect job, actually, you know, to my mind. It but, is, uh, yeah, it yes. Is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just to say, I notice with myself, as I get older, I start making connections. I mean, I, I describe it as everything ringing a bell. Everything sort of yes. rings a bell. Someone mentions a place and I can say, well, I've been there, you know, and uh, it reminds me of this and that. And I wonder if our minds don't become more synthetic as we get older rather than analytic. I mean, I'm not sure why this is, but. Well, I think it that does happen if we allow ourselves to be right-brained. Uh -huh. But if we get stuck in being left-brained, we're likely to sort of end up with Alzheimer's and so forth <laughs> and uh -huh. not functioning so well. But I do find that, for instance, neuroscience is teaching us a great deal. And one of the things that has fascinated me, because I've worked in libraries like the British Library and the Paris Bibliothèque Nationale, oh. but also saddened by the way the earlier forms were like the brain. They were mm -hmm. round and they functioned like the brain. And now they've become square glass boxes oh. and so forth, which is very left brain instead of right brain. Yeah. And I was sort of, you know, showing these images oh. of what they've done to what was really beautiful and functional before. So 
in the sense, the cemetery is also like a human brain. Yes. Uh, it has two hemispheres, and then uh -huh. it has the library. And, uh, and it's circular, yes. Yes. Talk about, you know, everything ringing a bell. This rings a bell with a paper I wrote in library school on mm. uh, existential space, where I focused on the British Museum reading room and the Library of Congress reading room and their circular spaces. Yes. As opposed to the rectangle. And, right. you know, the, the theorist of this at the time was a man called, I can't think of his first name, Norberg Schultz was his last name. He wrote on existential mm -hmm. space. Very interesting book. Also put forward the figure that Leonardo uses of the man inscribed within a circle there. Something about those spaces is just so um, integrating and humane compared to a rectangle. Yes, absolutely. And this is what I've loved with finding out this aspect in this cemetery. And when I came, it was all put to weed killer with ah, chemicals and it was uh -huh. dead. It was awful. And then the Roma came and asked if they could garden and they planted Florence's lilies. Wow. And that holds the soil from the erosion. And it's so perfumed. And all of Florence has come to love it, although they hate the Roma. They're seeing now that the Roma can do something which is absolutely excellent. Mm -hmm. So that's wow. how we've sort of worked against racism. And also the cemetery is quite extraordinary. This is an engraving of what it was like in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And all of those tombs except one are still there. So there's this wonderful sense of permanence, a permanent memory. And then we're the caretakers of that. We research and restore it. Interesting. Very much like any librarian. I mean, I, I often make this connection between cemeteries and libraries myself. Anyone that works in a library, researcher or librarian, both, you know that the thoughts that comprise the volumes that you're surrounded by are by people who are no longer with us. So, you know, you're preserving mm -hmm. something of the past into the present and future. So there's a lot of correspondence there. And, and yes. actually, I have noticed also in certain etymologies, like the word for engrave, the word that, that engraving comes from, means to dig in the earth, basically. And, you know, yes. crypts, you know, relate to cryptography, you know, hidden symbols. So there's something sort of tenebrious about working in a library that makes you sometimes feel you're working underground. Also, a lot of libraries, of course, are burial grounds. I mean, a lot of famous people are buried under the floors of libraries and presidential libraries, some of them anyway. Yes. Uh, FDR's yes. library here in town actually holds his grave and uh, Eleanor's grave mm -hmm. next to it here. So. so they do seem to go together, don't they? Yes. And what's particularly interesting here is that I'm working with people who were enslaved for centuries mm -hmm. and have never been allowed to learn to read and write. And here they are in a library with books and they wow. count all the books on the shelves. They help me bind books. I teach them the alphabet. Wow. I teach them in the beginning even how to write their names uh -huh. because that was something that was always denied that aspect of inclusion. And it has been fascinating because I record their stories and I find they've got this marvelous library of oral tales, which are the tales that are in Shakespeare mm -hmm. and Apuleius and so forth. They are not really illiterate at all. Mm. They have a vast culture. It just hasn't been allowed to get into the form of the written word. You have wonderful photographs of 
holding literacy classes in the library um, that, yes. that I've seen. But you have a wonderful image of a woman who's learning to engrave headstones. Uh, yes. You know, uh, so wonderful thing, you know. And then you're recording oral histories in the library also, aren't you? So, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. So you have the Roma as your patrons in a way as well, you know, as your clients yes. here, you know, mm -hmm. you know, in the library yes. and in the cemeteries. And they weren't enslaved people. Now, that's very interesting because a lot of your, I call them denizens, you know, the, the people who occupy the graves in your cemetery were involved <laughs> in the American abolition movement, weren't they? Even yes. though it's an English cemetery. And I wonder if you can talk about, well, who resides with you in your cemetery there? A, and then B, what right. is their history? Well, we've got many writers and many artists who were working against slavery, abolitionists. Uh -huh. Hiram Powers, the American sculptor who did the Greek slave that was uh -huh. at the center of the Crystal Palace exhibition in 1851, seen by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Frederick Douglass visited our cemetery to uh -huh. honor Theodore Parker and Richard Hildreth and Elizabeth Barrett Browning for their work against slavery. And then we also have, it's not just slavery that was a concern, it was women, uh, children working in mines and factories, Francis Trollope and Thomas Southwood Smith, and also they were working for freeing nations from empires, mm -hmm. Poland from Russia, Hungary from Austria. Some of our people were under sentence of death from Vienna and so mm -hmm. on, like Pushki, who was the friend of Kusuf, who mm -hmm. actually traveled in America and wrote a book called Black, White and Red, mm -hmm. where he was writing against what he saw of slavery at the same time that Francis Trollope was also oh. writing, Jonathan Jefferson Whitlaw. Mm -hmm. And so it's fascinating. I'm finding that what was going on in the 19th century is what we're replicating again in the 21st. It is an uphill battle with <laughs> racism. And today I wrote on Facebook that the Roma, not only were they slaves, but they were also in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And then the surviving children walked back like the long walk for survival, like the Native Americans, to their homes in Romania from Transnistria, which is part of Ukraine. All of the rest of their families dead. So mm -hmm. they were, in the sense, when we talked about yesterday being the Holocaust memory, the Roma were subjected to almost every form mm -hmm. of what could be done to punish poverty and did, difference. Did I see you'd written recently about, or I come across a narrative somewhere that you'd actually had in the cemetery, a mass said for the Roma loss yes. in, in the Holocaust because they hadn't been mourned. You know, those right, people. right. <laughs> I found that the trauma that the these were the grandchildren and great nephews and so forth. But they remembered, although mm -hmm. they were illiterate, all the names of the dead in their family. In the hunger, it was called a porajmus, the great hunger. There were even instances like Ugolino of cannibalism. And they felt mm -hmm. so awful about this that they mm -hmm. hated themselves. So I asked the Roman Orthodox priest, the Romanian Orthodox priest, and the Romanian Orthodox Church hates the Roma, but the Roma are deeply Christian in mm -hmm. Romania, to come and do the mass for the dead. 
and he did and they created the banquet because they believe you eat with the dead because the dead are hungry and with the mass with the candle the bread and the wine and the food and so forth and after that i sensed that for them there was more dignity there was more mm -hmm. sense of self-worth that it had helped them overcome the horror of the stories that they knew Memory and remembering seem critical here, and it is what libraries and cemeteries, to some extent, mm -hmm. you know, collections of monuments are all about as a way of healing in a way, or at least a way yes. of helping to overcome trauma and maybe stop it from happening in the future. So, yes. um, as I say, it's all of a piece in a way uh, here. Yes. Mm -hmm. Your work is a kind of mission of memory, isn't it? You also mentioned, in connection with the abolition movement in the United States, a story that I had never come across. You know, we were just celebrating the 700th <laughs> anniversary of Dante's death date right. last yes. September, I think it was. But I never heard anyone, with all the discussion of the comedy, talk about the connection with African Americans and the abolition mm -hmm. movement. And I wonder if you could tell that story, because it really is something. Right. Um, that was Professor Dennis Looney, and his book mm -hmm. was published by Notre Dame University called, um, oh, what is it? It's, uh, it's a wonderful book, um, Freedom Readers, where he described how the African-American community in their education were reading Dante, because Dante's theology is liberation theology. He bases the Commedia on Psalm 113, when you come out of Exodus, out of Egypt, to the land, and so forth. And it's fascinating also when reading Frederick Douglass's diary, which is in the Library of Congress, and it's on the web, mm -hmm. in his beautiful handwriting. Remember, he was forbidden to learn how to read and write. He describes in his travel diary, going to Egypt, and thrilling there at the sense that this is the exodus from Egyptian slavery, oh. this palimpsesting, which is what Dante is also doing mm -hmm. in the Commedia. And I very much appreciated Dennis Looney, who came here and told me about how important the cemetery was for oh. Francis Trollope mm -hmm. and for Theodore Parker. Theodore Parker is the one who first said, government is by the people, for the people, of the people. And Lincoln used it. And he also said the arc of the moral compass bends slowly, but it bends towards justice, mm -hmm. which then Martin Luther King said, and Barack Obama put on the Oval Office carpet, which Trump threw out, and also said it at Nelson Mandela's funeral. Mm -hmm. So the cemetery has a lot of American history. That's how far away. Yeah, very unusual. And wasn't there a story about a diorama that was brought to Cincinnati yes. of, of the that, Inferno? That was Frances Trollope, who oh, went it? up uh -huh. Mississippi, and she was a sort of, you know, entrepreneur trying to support her large family. Her husband was not very good as a lawyer, and she was having to raise all of the children like uh, Anthony. Mm -hmm. And there she was. She met um, Hiram Powers, who was a young Native American from Vermont in Cincinnati, and they did the, the diorama of waxworks of Dante's Commedia uh -huh. on the American frontier. And, um, it's, it's an amazing story. Is, Dennis yeah. Looney told me that story, too. <laughs> That's in his book, Freedom Readers. 
you, you hear of traveling Shakespeare groups, but I didn't know about the traveling Dante uh, diorama. Yes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And you got your education in the States, didn't you? Was it Santa Cruz or I, Berkeley? Well, I, my father was a writer and he uh -huh. was between books and it was after the war and the financial situation was very bad. So there was no more money for my school fees at my uh -huh. Anglican convent school. Uh -huh. So I was packed off with the last of the family's trust money for education to California to be with uh -huh. an aunt at 16 and went to college. And then uh -huh. later on with three small children and my husband no longer wanting the family, I went to graduate school in the midst of bayonets and tear gas, uh -huh. the trouble. <laughs> and and good, somehow... Good time to be in school, though. So It was an exciting yeah. time. Yeah. And tuition was only $60 a year uh, back then for the University of California at Berkeley. So I got my doctorate mm -hmm. at Berkeley finishing it while I was teaching for the Franciscans in Quincy. Mm -hmm. And then from an NEH summer seminar at Princeton, I was uh, interviewed for both Princeton and Buffalo oh. and had to choose between the two. And I chose Princeton because of its library with manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Index of Christian Art was already there. Wonderful, yes. Although Buffalo was a good school, you know, loaded yes. with poets at the time. And the, the wonderful, whole, exciting yeah. with Leslie Fiedler. And yeah, so exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, my wife was a student of Fiedler's there, actually. So uh, uh, yes. the whole Black Mountain contingent sort of decamped there mm -hmm. those, mm -hmm. those years. You were writing in the beginning then on Brunetto Latini when you were in graduate Yes. School? Well, my dissertation was on pilgrimage in Dante Langland and Chaucer. Uh -huh. And that's when I discovered Brunetto Latinus Tesoretto. So when I was studying paleography under Jean Preston at Princeton, I then took on editing the 17 manuscripts of the Tesoretto, oh. and that was published. And then it was republished here in Florence. And uh, I've now published it again this past year with all of the other writings of Brunetto. And I found that fascinating because there you see Dante's education uh -huh. and perhaps one of those manuscripts of the Tesoretto is by Dante as a schoolboy because Brunetto was his guardian when his father died. Uh -huh. His mother had died when he was five years old and the manuscripts are on poor parchment because Dante was poor. Mm -hmm. And so I this was just in the news, wasn't it? There was just a yes. story in the news about this particular it, it made it to the Times of London, the no. Daily Mail, yeah, and it, yeah, so. Republica, yeah. and so forth. Uh, but it probably needs to be examined, I suppose, by people who know Dante's hand very well. Of course, do we have other examples? No, of no, 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 we don't, of course. Everybody's no, been so looking for so. it. Yeah, <laughs> but okay. we've got 10 documents signed yeah. by Brunetto in his own hand. Yeah. And uh, so that. That was why I felt that if we looked at Brunetta's students, we could uh -huh. find it. Well, maybe so. It's an interesting uh, manuscript. It was at the circle in the square. It was a, there was yeah. a, yeah. The, the, that's the, in the Tesoro. Tesoro, okay. And that's yeah. where Brunetto says the circle is far superior to the uh -huh. square. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that brings us back to the beginning yeah. of our talk. Rings another bell, yes, of course. So, uh, Do you ahead. remember how George Eliot spoke about if you played a flute beside a great bell, you would find 
Ah. the resonance uh-huh. and I think that's what happens to us when uh-huh. we're studying similar materials we see all the links uh-huh. yeah maybe so it seems to be the case yes so that's great so why would someone today be interested in Brunetto Latini because he's training the young generation how to have a republican form of government uh-huh. based on Cicero a form of government with integrity and uh, the concept of buon governo. And he's training them in ethics and rhetoric. And he's also having to write the Tesoro in French first, Mm. because they've elected a rather belligerent brother of San Louis, Charles of Anjou, to fight against Manfred to win back Florence for the church. And there he is trying to educate Charles of Anjou, who probably never bothered to read the book, how to govern with integrity, with a limited term of office, swearing the oath on the Constitution, which comes to America by way of Filippo Mazzei and Thomas Jefferson. Uh Absolutely fascinating. You have many interests, of course, but you have published a work called Adulta di Maria, an anthology of pilgrims and contemplative texts. And I wonder if you want to mention that. Okay, um, Mary's diary, yes. yes yeah. uh-huh. um, when I was working on Julian of Norwich, I went to stay. I discovered that her work on Julian had been plagiarized and that she had prepared this wonderful edition for her Leeds University thesis. And she had worked on transcribing all of the manuscripts very accurately, Mm -hmm. which was to be published by the Early English Text Society. But then two priests managed to plagiarize it and published it themselves and wrote to the earliest English (laughs) Text Society and said, don't have anything to do with her. And when I discovered this, I asked my computer guru if he could find her because she had got a doctorate at Leeds. Mm And he phoned me up 15 minutes later. I was in the conference. He said, I found her. Uh-huh. She's in County Kildare and she wants to speak with you. So I would go and stay with the sisters, the Catholic sisters mm-hmm. in Kilcullen, which is St. Bridget's place. Uh-huh. And there I was, the Anglican nun, staying with the Catholic sisters. And we worked together on the edition. Uh-huh. And one of the nuns said to me, England is Mary's dowry. And my husband took my diary and left me with my three children to raise on my own with no money. So the title is a little bit of a dig about that, Uh because the diary has to be returned to the wife if Uh she is chaste and faithful. Oh, I see. I see. That's why you call it marriage diary. Okay, yes. Um, but it was a wonderful book to put together with all of these texts that I had loved and studied and with an Italian. So it's dual language. It's in both Italian and English. And altogether, it's about 10 languages. Mm-hmm. And you can download it for free on the web and print it out yourself because the print run is exhausted now. Mm-hmm. And James Hogg, who was this wonderful Carthusian monk, who was the editor of the press, who then married and was professor at the University of Salzburg. We have lost him. He's no longer with us. So uh, this book, I think now we can just sort of cast the bread on the waters and so forth, see what happens. 
Very interesting. So you've also written or translated the work of female visionary aesthetics like Julian of Norwich. So can you talk a bit about Julian, who always absolutely fascinated me? I can remember first in graduate school because I was the generation before women's liberation. Uh And my father from Oxford despised women, cried when I was born as a girl and so forth. So I had interiorized all of this hatred of women. And thought that Julian was, oh, all of this blood flowing and so on and so forth. Mm. And then I went through a conversion and realized I was asked to do a book on Bridget of Sweden. Mm-hmm. And I was traveling from library to library after having done this with Brunetta, all the major European libraries on Bridget. And I kept finding Julian. So I came to Julian by the back door, for instance, I was in the Vatican Library reading about Cardinal Adam Easton, who was a Norwich Benedictine who supported Bridget's canonization. And he seemed to have been Julian's spiritual director. And he was brilliant. He translated the whole Bible from Hebrew into Latin. The mm-hmm. translation is lost. He also was reading Pseudo Dionysius and wow. had access to the Greek. Mm-hmm. And so he's deeply learned. And this learning shows up in Julian's texts. Dionysius is there. And uh, she also is translating directly from Hebrew into Middle English mm-hmm. two centuries before the King James Bible. Mm-hmm. So I found her absolutely fascinating and uh, loved, spent 12 years, gave up everything to do her work, including my professorship, my house, Mm. my family, my car, everything. (laughs) And then found that even I had to give up my Anglican convent, it ended, Uh and I had to flee to Italy to be an exile, Mm -hmm. a hermit. A hermit. You mentioned, I remember reading something, uh, well, you're defining that word, and it's a bit different than I'm used to understanding the term. A hermit isn't necessarily somebody who just hides themselves away and has nothing to do with others. You're an urban hermit, you've described yourself as. And uh, I wonder, I and you mentioned that it has to do with sustainability in a way, so well, being yes. self-sustaining. Right. For a long time, the church was deeply suspicious of the mavericks, the hermits, mm. and so on and so forth, because we are rather the, the prophets instead of the priests, mm. and we're the outsiders. And so it was forbidden for a long time. And then after Vatican II, it was permitted again, but you have to be self-sustaining. You Mm -hmm. can't ask the church to support you. So in a sense, finally having my social security meant that I did have a small income. Mm -hmm. And with the vow of poverty, I'm not using much of that income. It goes for Roma families. And it's quite extraordinary because um, social security is 16,000 a year. And I'm supporting 12 Roma families with uh-huh. it. And, uh, well, that, that it, is it, amazing. It helps. At yeah. any rate. So you've sampled, in a way, various different ways of living. I mean, you've been an academic. You've been a mother, yes. I mean, you were married at yes. one time. You lived a cenobitic life and that you were part of a monastery at one time, or a convent anyway, and now you're alone yes. there as a hermit in Florence. Very interesting. And I did find the experience of being in a convent. We were Anglo-Catholic, so mm-hmm. very ah. close to Catholicism and very close to the medieval model of Catholicism, Uh that this is a much deeper way of understanding medieval texts. Uh 
because so much of it is based on the monastic liturgy, yeah. and Dante and Piers Plowman and so forth. And I'm very grateful for that experience because um, it did teach me so much more than mm -hmm. I'd already had had from the academic side. Yeah. The whole problem with American medievalist academics before the 60s was that they were all Protestants and the medievalists had no idea what they were talking about, I should say, from my Catholic upbringing perspective and also my mentor, Joan Ferrante. So I wanted to ask you about your early work. You have a collection of essays entitled Equally in God's Image, Women in the Middle Ages which I remember reading while studying with Joan Ferrante at Columbia in the early 90s when it was first published. And I have to say the introduction of that book, which provides a history of women in education and letters in the West, I found to be essential and very, it's a very powerful overview of the place of women in education in Europe and America generally. I use it, for instance, as a contextual reading for first-year students as something of an introduction to the political origins of my own institution, Bachelor College, which was the first college to grant higher degrees to women in the United States. And I still find your introduction to that book rather breathtaking, honestly, Julia. I, you know, I've heard it <laughs> described by some of my feminist medieval colleagues as a more crucial overview of medieval letters than either Curtius's uh, European literature in the Latin Middle Ages or Auerbach's Mimesis. And I wonder if you ever, ever get feedback on that book because it, I, uh, yours is almost the first feedback I've had. Oh, I, I, I actually wept when I read your words oh. because actually I did get feedback. Hans mm -hmm. Kung cites it in oh. his book on Christianity and he accepts the argument which we were making uh -huh. that with the coming of the universities, which is a Greco-Arabic model and not Christian, Christianity ceased to be the religion of women and slaves. Mm -hmm. That had been its power, and it still is. I mean, most yeah. of the people in congregations are women. Yeah. Christianity really speaks to us. Mm -hmm. But then theology was only officially authorized in these male-only conclaves, the Sorbonne and Oxford. Yeah. And so a whole aspect of Christianity got lost. Uh -huh. And what we were seeing was that from the Romanesque period to the Gothic, the status of women, it became much more decorative, but also debilitated. Mm -hmm. And um, one does, if you see it that way, it does make sense. Yeah, it does. Women got pushed out to the margins, didn't they? So that if they were going to contribute to the church, it had to be as uh, mystics or people on the outside of a written tradition. Mm -hmm. So a wonderful book anyway, and, uh, and wonderful Thank introduction you. to Western letters and the power you're using it today to explain the situation of the Roma, but of the power of letters in sorting different elements of society into the haves and the have-nots. So you were just working on a book on the intersection of neuroscience and theology, building in part on the work of Julian Jaynes, whom I know was an old friend and was with you when you were at Princeton. And this is something I know you could spend hours on, but I wonder if you could just mention your interest in Jaynes and the kind of work you were working on there. <laughs> Oh, there were wonderful heady conversations uh -huh. at Princeton when he was writing his book, The Origin of 
consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. I said to him, Julian, you'll never publish a book with a title <laughs> like that. And it became a bestseller. But we were spending hours together. Thomas Day was a friend of my father's and a Greek scholar who studied under W.B. Stanford. And so Julian and Thomas and I were talking about how in Homer, in the oral literature, when a character is in crisis and has to make a decision, he hallucinates mm -hmm. that decision making externally as Athena. And I was talking about how in pilgrimage texts, pilgrims hallucinate their journey to in these churches where they would incubate uh, mm -hmm. overnight to have those dreams, as had already been done in the Greek world and the Temple of Aesculapius mm -hmm. at Epidavros, and how children have the monsters under the bed. Mm -hmm pre-literate children are still part of this right hemisphere world and so on. And my Roma, who are mm. pre-literate, uh -huh. also have this extraordinary capacity to actually see the whole and all of the details at once mm -hmm. and solve problems immediately. They can mm. mend anything. They're much more intelligent than we are in many, many aspects. Mm -hmm. To Aristotle, who's somewhat of a culprit in this, he mm -hmm. does define theory as being able to hold in the mind the whole in all its parts, to yes. conceive the parts as part of the whole. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Thomas may even draw on that in his definition of beatitude, doesn't he, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, yeah, but wonderful. our modern education uh, splinters it all apart, uh -huh. you know, little boxes and so forth, tacky little boxes. But anyway, that's how the book was, it's in many different forms, all kinds of different computer programs, as well as printed in William Morris type by hand. Mm -hmm. But I was working with the image of God, the face, uh -huh. um, where one side is merciful and the other is judgmental, mm -hmm. as like the bicameral, because we paint the image of God, as Dante says, in our own image. So uh, there's uh -huh. this mirroring. Yeah. And then I was also working on the image of women, Mary, as uh, Constantine and his mother, Helen, who was perhaps a British slave, uh -huh. who is then created empress. She and Constantine in their togas become the Madonna and child in the Romanesque uh, uh -huh. sculptures. And they are equal. On the mm -hmm. throne of wisdom, which gets lost with the Gothic, where the Madonna has to simper at her baby, court him in this courtship, yeah. and so forth, of the inferior to the superior. You have wonderful uh, description of the icon of Christ at St. Catherine's, which I was yes. lucky enough at one time to actually view there. And you're right, one side of the face is very different from the other. If you look at the way the figure is composed there, and of course, he's holding his right hand up in benediction, and in the left hand, he has the book. So, um... yes. And our faces are that too. Yeah, we uh -huh. have two sides. They do mirror, uh -huh. and, uh, a mirror and a pose at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you have any advice for young people starting out in the world, possibly in the academic world, since I'm thinking of our students here as a scholar, because 
as a scholar who obviously takes the life of the mind and the spirit to be something inseparable from life, where you've woven a kind of pattern between your education and the world you inhabit, by making your education practical, I'm thinking you may have something to say to people. So should people be contemplating graduate school, for instance, or uh, I suppose I, I'm asking a typical question that a knight might ask a hermit, you know, <laughs> you know, what road should I take here? What road should people yeah. take? Yeah. So. Uh, Oh dear. I think the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, certainly do not go into it in a dry as dust Sorbonne uh -huh. way. I was very grateful to a professor at Berkeley when I began and first he said, are you a bored housewife in the four women's liberation? I said, no, I've got three sons to support. And then he took me seriously. <laughs> and then he said, now don't go and choose a third rate mind because you will be walking around in it for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Choose someone like Dante. Oh, I did. Uh -huh. and, and he was right. No, well, that's and good. You're also, walking around in Dante now, aren't you? Yes, so, so, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And also, I think it's important. One of the things in England, our schooling, we would have to write an essay every week. And it was a humanistic style essay mm. like Montaigne or Virginia oh, Woolf. Oh. So you would go for a walk in the countryside and then come home and write the essay. You know, we were reading De Quincey and so on, Hazlitt and Lamb. Um, and that you don't do in America. You write the German style outlined thesis. Mm -hmm. And what I found I wanted to do in my dissertation was to write on figural aspects of Exodus and Emmaus in Dante Langdon and Chaucer, mm -hmm. as if it were a poem in uh -huh. turn. Uh -huh. And the final chapter is on how they, mi pave pinta delle nostre fige, how Dante sees God in our image. And this, in the sense, is this um, humanizing of these poets is mm -hmm. um, so central. And I think if I had tried to analyze them in the academic way, it uh, wouldn't have, you know. But perhaps the book went into three editions, mm -hmm. but it doesn't get cited by the scholars. I'm not doing scholarship in the way scholars accept. Yeah. So I'm a maverick on the outside. But I don't need or want that kind of recognition either. Mm -hmm. If I can just go on doing what I love and sharing it with everyone, not just an elite group. Uh -huh. um, yeah, it makes sense. It's a Buddhist virtue, isn't it, to want to be overlooked? So, um, of course, I don't know if most scholars yes, want to be overlooked. Then it doesn't matter. But, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Uh, yeah, interesting. I used to say, in terms of planning your education, you, you don't want to plan your education in any way in a plan that you're going to follow, because what could be duller, you know? You don't want to plan your life, partly because young people, their imaginations aren't up to reality in a sense. You know, I, I'm going to study medicine and become a doctor and marry a girl from Philadelphia and have a family, you know, who would want to live that kind of life, even if you could imagine it. So, and then the reality is we all wash up, don't we? We all just happen to wash up. And ideally the adage, you wash up where you belong may come true, but we all just wash up somewhere like Robinson Crusoe. I'd rather be Robinson Crusoe than Horatio Alger, I'll tell you that. So, um, <laughs> 
and, right. yes no. and I, I think that Robinson Crusoe thing is important I really feel uh, especially for women mm-hmm. that we need skills languages for our scholarship how to edit texts and these are not being taught any longer really they're all being you know instead it's theory but also we need manual skills you need to build your own bookshelves uh-huh. we build cradles with our Roma families and cradles are fascinating they're a bit like coffins you know uh-huh. the carpentry is really interesting I'm fortunate I'm very fortunate that I grew up as a child during the war with the foster family where he was a carpenter oh. and these skills as a child uh-huh. and but I think we need things like you know, Christ was a carpenter the disciples were fishermen mm-hmm. Paul was a tent maker you need skills that you can fall back on in the emergency uh-huh. and not necessarily the academic ones no Working with your hands, I mean, we are divided up by class still, you know, even yes. after all these years. And the intellectual life is something different than the life of, you know, just doing and something. And that really cripples us. It does, yeah, yeah. And right now it's starting to separate out Republicans and Democrats in the United yes. States, where the Democrats yes. are all more college educated than the Republicans. And it's sort of a flip, you know, and, and the working they class now are Republicans. Other, yeah, right. they, we don't, no, not at all. No, I, I think you're right there, so. I just wanted to end with something. Let's okay. see if I can get this right. One could say a cemetery is a library chiseled in marble. Uh-huh. A library, a cemetery printed on paper. Both memorialize, as does the human brain. But these outlast our mortality. With them, we cheat death. I learned as a student of medieval romance that memory is extremely important and it really is the royal road to virtue. I mean, you train yourself as a good person by learning to train your memory, essentially. Yes. So a wonderful way to, to end up. So anyway, I'd like to thank you, Julia, for visiting with thank us today you. on the Library Cafe to talk about your life and work and your role as a keeper of graves at the English Cemetery in Florence, Italy. Thanks a million for coming and talking with us. Thank you.